We are continuing our King and Kingdom series this morning. Pastor Jay is going to be preaching from Matthew 21, verses 12 through 16, and I will read those right now. Beginning in verse 12, Matthew 21. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Um, I want to start by apologizing for it being cold outside. I, I don't know if I, it's just part of getting a little older, but I'm getting bitter. And not just bitter cold, but just emotionally. So, uh, Well, this morning with the fifth Sunday, uh, elementary age kids are with us. And so kids, it's great to have you in with us. And uh, if you're new to Scarlet City, uh, we're delighted to have you as a guest. And I and others would love to meet you and connect with you after our worship gathering. And we've been going through the gospel of Matthew, uh, looking uh, through the gospel in two, through two lens. Uh, first, uh, looking at the life of Jesus, from his birth, the miracles, uh, to, his, to the coming crucifixion and resurrection, and considering what are the events of Jesus' life teach us about who he is. But then also we will be returning if you've noticed, there might be whole uh, sections that we've uh, seemingly skipped. Um, the Gospel of Matthew divides the book, and there are five teaching sections where Matthew will bring together teachings of Jesus, like on the Sermon of the Mount, uh, to illustrate some uh, truths about the kingdom. And so we'll be coming back, looking specifically at some of those teachings down the road. Uh, but for today, we're continuing through the life of Christ, the events in his life. And Jesus, there was much of what he did that was shocking. And speaking of uh, shocking action, there was an event that occurred in London at an art auction that had never before happened in the history of art actions. This past October, uh, there was an artwork called Balloon Girl, some of you may know what I'm referring to. Others of you, uh, you'll, you'll learn. Uh, art Girl, uh, this painting was sold at an art auction, uh, and it was by an uh, anonymous British artist called Banksy. And Banksy was a street artist, a film director, and a political activist. And what was amazing about what happened was it began with this painting, and they, they have an art auction, and so it begins, you know, $20,000, $40,000, $100,000, a million dollars. It eventually sold for $1.4 million. But what made history was not that price, because art has sold for more than that on a number of occasions. But what made history was what happened next 
as soon as the gavel went down and it was pronounced sold and, and people in the room are, uh, are cheering and they're excited, a buzzer went off and the painting started sliding down through the frame and there was a shredder built into the frame and it shredded the painting immediately after it was sold for $1.4 million. And you can watch this on YouTube. So look it up. Not now, maybe, maybe later this afternoon. And people are shocked. They're looking and what's happening. Now, uh, the lady who purchased it, she, um, she kept the painting. She could have returned it back. She kept it. And thankfully, it's now people uh, think it's worth double what she paid for it. Because as, uh, as the company put it, they said this. I love this. He said, Banksy didn't destroy an artwork in the auction. He created artwork at the auction. This was the first artwork in history to have been created live during an auction. And so now it's called, the name of this is Love is in the Bin. And so what, what does this teach us? You know, I'm not an art critic, so I can't really comment on, uh, you know, art. And if you take something you paint and put it through a shredder, maybe it will double in price. I'm not, probably not, uh, but not quite sure. But one of the things this teaches us is something about the artist, the event here. Banksy is wanting to send a message. Through these actions, we learn something about Banksy. And he has a quote describing this. He says, the urge to destroy is also a creative urge. <laughs> He's wanting to communicate something about art and life through this event, using a shocking experience. Matthew's gospel is recording events in Jesus's life. And they're not just random events so we can look back and think, oh, interesting. He's recording events in Jesus's life to, communicating, to communicate something about how Jesus's life can shape us today. And there are shocking. Sometimes the events in Jesus's life are subtle and there's messages there, but often there are shocking events. And we've gone through this the past number of weeks. We've seen God's son is born in a stall for animals. Jesus fasts for 40 days and is tempted by Satan himself. There are miraculous healings. Jesus takes a few fish and bread and feeds thousands of people. Jesus walks on water. The glory of God shines through Jesus at what's called the transfiguration. Last week, Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the week of Passover as pilgrims are coming in to worship God and offer sacrifices. Jesus enters not on a horse, but on an unbroken-in donkey, communicating something about the character and nature of God and what he's offering. And this morning, we look at Jesus arriving at the temple. And what does he do? He overthrows, he overthrows the temple. It's been called cleanses the temple. Jesus comes and brings judgment and make no mistake, this was up to this point the most shocking thing Jesus does. So what does it mean for us today? What is Jesus's event here? Cleansing the temple, judging the temple, 
What implications does it have for us in our life today? We see Jesus, Jesus overthrowing two systems. Two systems experience judgment. First, Jesus brings justice socially. One could say social justice. But second, and also, and most and also importantly, Jesus brings justice personally. He's overthrowing two systems, a social system and a religious system, bringing justice. What does this mean for us today? Well, as we kind of enter in, I want to highlight three forces that can prevent us from really experiencing and growing an understanding about the implications of what Jesus is doing. Three forces a first is the force of indifference to the background and culture that we're engaging with in the Bible. We can, as we're going to look in and learn about the temple and these practices, there, for many of us, we can look at this and think, ah, weird. We don't have temples today, sacrifices. Uh, what relevance is that for me? And that is a perspective that's often shaped by our individualistic culture that equates relevance with just something that has implications for me now. And we, we don't want to put in the work to understand other cultures and their experiences. And we need, we need to resist that temptation to be willing to learn about their culture and the temple and what it means because it shapes what Jesus did and the implications for us. Another force is the force of being just a spectator. Jesus is going to do something shocking. And sometimes when we see shocking events like driving by an accident, you just can look over and think, oh man, that's crazy. You slow down, further complicating the traffic behind you. And, and you, you might say a prayer or think, man, I hope everyone's okay. And then you just drive on. There can be the temptation, just look at this and see the shock of what Jesus is doing and miss the personal implications. We need to resist that temptation and that force. The third force is the political force uh, that we all come to passages like this on and we want to read this through the lens of our politics and the divisions of our day and thus maybe not hear how Jesus wants to challenge us in our way of thinking. And so having these forces in mind, let's engage this shocking account recorded in all, all four Gospels, an account that would have been that what led to Jesus' crucifixion. How does it call us? How does it bring justice socially? How does it bring justice personally? First, looking at the social justice that Jesus is bringing. Jesus is bringing judgment on a social system. Now, understanding the context of this situation, Jesus here uh, in the temple courts, would have been entering into a very chaotic situation. There would have been hundreds, up to a thousand people in this courtyard. There would have been hundreds or thousands of animals. So there's a lot of noise, a lot of commotion. And upon Jesus' entrance, people, his reputation had preceded him. Just the day before, he enters into Jerusalem with people chanting, Hosanna, there's expectation and excitement about who he is and what he's doing. So when Jesus enters in to the temple courtyard, people were paying attention. And it says that he overturns the tables. And, and the idea here is not Jesus showing up and 
doing kind of like a, you know, humble Jesus, like, a, oh, flip a table, you know, oops, oh, sorry, um, you know, what's this, you know, bump, bump the table over, oh, my bad, you know, no. John records Jesus showing up with and whipping things. Jesus here isn't just politely overturning some tables. Jesus is angry. He's angry by what he sees. What makes you angry? What leads you to flip tables and make a scene? You know, some of us get angry because we're just in an irritable mood. You kind of wake up, weather's cold, you're like, ah, ah. Others of us get angry when we're hungry. Megan, my wife, she, she, she has this. She gets hangry. And when Megan's hangry, and I asked her if I could say this. Uh, I always do, mostly. <laughs> when Megan gets hangry, it's not personal. You know, it feels personal if she starts saying things like, oh, what? But really, she just needs Cheez-Its. Like, okay, we're all good. You got Cheez-Its or Wheat Thins, you know, she's the hangry. She's hangry. I, you know, I get, I get angry by about more important things, like sports. You know, we were just talking about the Bengals earlier, you know, and I just, I don't know why I don't convert to another team because each year season comes along and I get excited. We drafted someone new and, you know, by the end of the year, I'm throwing things at the television and, you know, it's a bad, it's a bad thing, a bad thing. We can get angry about just things that really don't matter. Oftentimes we get angry about stuff that we can't control. You're driving and someone cuts you off. And you know, it's scary when you're riding with an angry driver, isn't it? Do you get nervous? I get so nervous. I'm sitting in the passenger seat. And I'm just thinking, stop, please. Like, but when you're in that moment, you don't care. All you see is all oh, the injustice. But when you're just observing, you're like, man, I, I just, you don't own the road. We get angry when we're, we lose control. We get angry when people like Jesus show up in our life and they start overturning things. We feel threatened. What makes you angry? What makes Jesus angry? We see here that Jesus, he gets angry. He brings judgment. Jesus overturns systems that use God to oppress the powerless. That's what makes him angry. Angry enough to make a scene. Angry enough to flip over tables. Angry enough to bring judgment. Now, the temple. Jesus enters the temple courtyard. And to understand some of the significance, we need to take a moment to really look here about the temple and its significance. The temple was to be about God. It was a place where God's presence was experienced and mediated. At the center of the temple, within the temple infrastructure itself, was the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence was to preside, a place where the high priest could only go one time a year on the Day of Atonement to offer a sacrifice to cover the sins of the people of God. And outside the Holy of Holies was the holy place, and then there was an outer court. And there are three key developments of the temple in Jewish history. First, there was the tabernacle. And we looked at this when we walked through the book of Exodus. The tabernacle was a portable temple. God's people, when they're wandering in the wilderness, 
God wants to provide a means for them to experience his presence. So, so, so they built a portable temple. And then around 1000 BC under King Solomon, uh, they would build a permanent infrastructure, a, a temple building. And then around the 6th century BC, the Babylonians would destroy that. And about 75 years later, in the book of Ezra, in the Old Testament, we see God's people rebuild the temple. There's a second temple built. And this second temple uh, was redeveloped under Herod the Great, King Herod. The same Herod we met at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew that wanted to execute Jesus when when he was a child. That same Herod builds what was considered an unrivaled building in the whole region of the time, the second temple in Jerusalem. There's one problem. This miraculous and amazing building, it lost the original heart and intent that it was created to be about. It was to be a place, as we said, for the presence of God, but it became merely just a symbol for for Jewish pride. And so Jesus comes and brings judgment. In fact, it was believed by many at the time that God's presence no longer dwelled in the temple. And Jesus comes and he brings judgment. He comes and he overthrows systems of oppression that use God to disenfranchise the powerless. There's two components to this that we need to look. First, he overturns systems of oppression. What do we, what does that mean? What do we mean by Jesus bringing judgment on this system? Again, looking at the idea of the temple courts, this temple that was constructed under Herod, there were three courts to it outside of the temple building itself. Uh, There was uh, the first court where only priests could enter. And then there was the next court where Israelite men and uh, could enter. And then outside of that was the place where Israelite men and women could occupy. But then this outer court, the place where these animals are being sold, was the court of the Gentiles. And so Jesus is coming and bringing judgment, not because uh, animals were sold, but it was the place where they were sold. And the court of the Gentiles. And we see this because Jesus, when he's, he's unpacking why he's doing this, he quotes from Isaiah 56. When Jesus says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. He's quoting from Isaiah 56, 7, which says this, that their nations, that their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's what the prophet Isaiah is saying, rebuking God's people, saying, my temple will be a house for the nations. In fact, Mark, when he records the statement from Jesus, includes all nations in the statement. Jesus is coming to bring judgment on a system that is preventing all nations from worshiping God by capitalizing in the court of the Gentiles. And he drills this home, Matthew does, in verse 4. Look at what Jesus does. It says, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. And we read this, and we think, oh, well, that's just a nice gesture. I mean, that's good. Jesus heals the blind and the lame. But the first century Jewish audience, they would be immediately called to mind 
King David in 2 Samuel 5, where a group of people were in Jerusalem and King David comes to drive them out. And they taunt David. They taunt him by saying, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. And David enters in, takes possession of Jerusalem, and then says this, the blind and the lame will not enter the palace of God. The blind and the lame. The blind and the lame represented religious outsiders. And here, what is Jesus doing? The blind and the lame, the outsiders, experience healing at the temple. Here's the point. God's plan from the very beginning, the original purpose of the people of God and of the temple was that God's people would be a light to the nations. That the temple would be the place where the nations can come and experience God's presence. That's why when God forms a covenant with Abraham, he says, you will be a blessing to the world. And God's people took that privilege and made it about themselves. Jesus is bringing judgment. And so what implications does that have for us today? I think there's many, but two we want to hit on briefly. First, we must remember our mission. That God blesses his people so that they can be a blessing to the world. That our mission is to be a light to the world. To be a blessing, to serve and care and protect others. But also, as a church, we need to have the courage To ask, what barriers are we putting up that people far from God may not be able to experience? What barriers are we constructing as a church? Ways of doing things that make sense to us, but really seek and serve our interest and prevent others from experiencing God. You know, the people, they would have just expected that The sacrifices, the animals are sold in the courtyard. This was just normal. That was just how they did it. And Jesus shows up and brings judgment. If he showed up here, what judgment would Jesus bring? Are there barriers being constructed? Jesus brings judgment on a system. But also, Jesus brings judgment because they are using God for personal advantage. Again, look at how Jesus responds to the situation. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Making it a den of robbers is a quote from Jeremiah 7.11, a prophet that rebuked God's people because they used the temple as a place to hoard what they stole. It represented using God, using his name, using his place to promote oneself rather than to serve others. The temple at the time had come to represent the powerful elite who used their position for personal gain. And this happens in our world all the time. Politicians, college admissions, I mean, people using power, position for their gain. But where Jesus gets really angry is when it happens in a church. When people use God not to protect and care for others, but to promote themselves and to do it at the expense of the less fortunate. 
And so here, what, what implications? What does this mean for us? First, generally, if you're in a position of power, whether you're a parent, a teacher, a coach, a boss, if you're in a, any position of influence, you need to consider how are you using that position to serve others? Do you see people under your authority as they are to serve you? Or you there to serve them? But also, in a word we need to hear at Scarlet City, on a deeper level, how do we handle fraud and abuse? How do we handle fraud and abuse? It happens in churches. And there's a temptation in the church sometimes to want to cover it up. To think that we're doing God a favor by not contacting authorities and silencing a victim. And I want to be very clear at Scarlet City, that is not how we will operate. If reports of fraud and abuse happen, they will be taken to the authorities because we care about the name of Jesus. And if a church ever tries to silence a victim... In the name of Jesus, they need to know you are opposing justice in the name of Jesus. Fraud and abuse is a serious thing. And someone in position of leadership, especially spiritual leadership, is called to a high standard of protecting others. And that is what Jesus is doing. He's bringing justice. Jesus wants to leverage his power to protect others, to protect others the powerless. He's wanting to bring justice. He's wanting to bring justice into the systems of the world. Now, one thing here before we we move on. If you're someone and you're passionate about justice and you want to invest in these important causes, there's a, when when you get involved in that work long enough, you can be discouraged. You look at what needs to be done and when, often when we're young, we're very, uh, we're very zealous, and we, we think, ah, there's a problem. No one else knew about this, but I will figure it out. And you work, and you get excited, and then what happens? You might make a little bit of a difference, but the problem doesn't go away. And we get discouraged, and you want to quit. And what's, what's the use? You know, Jesus, after he does this, commentators note about 30 minutes after what he does, it would have been right back to the same system. Jesus doesn't come and bring judgment, and then it's fixed. Sometimes Jesus leaves things unfixed. And what Jesus leaves unfixed, we need to be careful of thinking we, in our pride that we can fix it ourselves. We play a part in God's work. We care. We invest. But we acknowledge and know that there will be some things because sin is still in the world and it affects the systems that we're a part of. There will be some things that go unfixed until he returns. So take heart. We won't fix and develop the perfect system. Jesus leaves some things unfixed. So we began looking at the justice that he's bringing socially, but also Jesus is going to bring justice personally. How? How does Jesus bring personal justice? We see that Jesus is overturning the previous religious system of continual sacrifice. As we had mentioned, Jesus, 
he does these shocking things. Like Jesus will heal someone and say, go, your sins are forgiven. And that's shocking for their audience because in their way of life, there was a way you dealt with sins. You went to the temple. There was a whole system. There was a way of handling this when someone sinned. You went to the temple. You offered a sacrifice. That was the place where sins were forgiven. And Jesus shows up, heals someone, says, your sins are forgiven. At which case, people would say, on what authority can you say that? It's like me handing out driver's licenses. Here's a driver's license. Jay, that's not how it works. You, know, you go to a place that has the authority to give a driver's license. And that's why every time they question Jesus here, what does he do? He appeals to the Father that God sent him. Jesus has the authority. And again, we're reminded here of the temple system. Every year they made a pilgrimage to Passover, on Passover, to offer a sacrifice so that God would, what's called atone, would cover their sins so they could have temporary forgiveness for their sin. And today, when we think of sin, we, we struggle. That whole idea, this temple, animals being sacrificed. I mean, what do you do with that? You know, first we struggle with the idea of sin, evil, injustice. We can call it out socially, but we struggle in our culture to label it personally. They had a whole system for this. As I mentioned, it was the temple system. But we have a system today. While there might not be animal sacrifice, there are sacrifices for sin. One sacrifice in our culture today, in our approach to sin, one sacrifice is justice itself. It's to look at sin and say, come on, no big deal. You know, we all can make mistakes. What's the problem here? And, and God, why can't you just overlook it? You know, why, God, why, why go through all, why, why does it need to get bloody? What? Can't you just say, you know, we've all made mistakes and it'll be all right, I'm God, we'll overlook this. Why can't God just do that? It's the same reason when a real strong act of injustice happens to you or someone you love. When someone you love is abused, when someone you love experiences injustice, you don't want the judge to just say, hey, mistakes happen. We all make mistakes. No, you want justice. And God is a holy God, a righteous God. He can't just overlook the injustices of the world. And so one sacrifice today, when we minimize the effects of sin, we, we sacrifice justice. We have no grounds on which to appeal and say something is wrong. Not just because I say it, but because it is how the world was designed. Sometimes we sacrifice justice, but another sacrifice in our culture today that wants to minimize personal sin is we sacrifice others. To feel better about ourselves, we dwell on the evil and wrong of other people. We will shame them publicly. We will all rally around when someone goes to Africa and kills an animal and wears it 
on themselves. We will all get on Facebook and shame them. And how could someone do that when there's abuse that occurs, when there's someone from another party we don't agree with that does something? We will all get on and publicly feel better about ourselves by sacrificing another person. But it doesn't cover. In fact, it just perpetuates the problem because we all, deep down, there's a part of each one of us that recognizes injustice isn't just something that happens to me. It's not just something that happens socially. It is a part of the system that I participate in. That I fall short. And so on what grounds does Jesus have the authority to say, your sins are forgiven? Here's the authority. You know, Jesus here has a protest at the temple, and in our culture, protesting is popular. We protest, as we mentioned on Facebook, we can protest on a corner, and you can protest the police with police protecting you. Oftentimes, people protest to their own advantage. Sometimes there's not much lost. Jesus' protest will cost him his life. You don't show up in the temple bringing judgment on people in power. And he knows it will cost him his life. It is why he is doing it. Jesus, his protest will cost him life. He goes against the Roman authorities, against the religious authorities. He's all alone in this. Even the disciples aren't defending him here. It's that time we're like, Jesus, you're alone. Jesus is the final sacrifice, enabling the permanent and personal presence of God. This action will bring him to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus is shredded. On the cross, Jesus is crucified so that we could be made whole so that we could have life, so that our sins can be covered, and so that we can have the permanent and personal presence of God. Jesus is the final sacrifice. No more sacrifices must be paid. We do not have to sacrifice justice, and we do not have to sacrifice and shame everyone else. We can have faith in the finished work of Jesus. And that is what can make us whole. And that is what can cover. And the implications for this are massive. A question, what system are you trusting for your salvation, for your covering? Are you sacrificing sin and justice? Are you sacrificing others? Or are you looking to Jesus? Are you resting in his work? On the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. After his death, the veil of the temple is torn. The presence of God is no longer relegated to a place and a continual sacrifice. But when we place our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God's presence, comes into your life and the life of the church. Jesus overturns a previous religious system and offers permanent, personal presence with God. The gospel brings justice horizontally, socially, and we cannot overlook this. 
And the, just, and the gospel also brings justice vertically. It makes us right with God through the finished work of Jesus. This is the good news. And as we close, if I could just make a personal appeal. You know, many today, we wrestle with Jesus. We wrestle with these things. We look at injustices and we, and, and we don't know what to do sometimes. We don't know what to think. And we're all on a journey, much like the Israelites then, making the pilgrimage to Jerusalem on Passover to offer a sacrifice in the hopes of experiencing God's presence. We're all on a journey to experience God. We're all trying to find where's meaning, what is life about? And we're all on this journey. And on this journey, we are shaped profoundly. We are shaped by our culture. You cannot help but be shaped by the culture in which you live in. And in our culture, and we had a class recently called the Bible and Culture. We define culture as this, is what you make of the world in both senses. This is the material things that you make. The material world, but also the meaning that you make. The values, these all shape us. We're part of a culture that shapes us. But also on the journey, there are people and experiences, and these shape you as well. People. The events of life. And that's where the joys and the pain of life is, right? I mean, it's the people and things that happen. Sometimes you get excited. There's good moments, life-giving moments. There's a wedding, and you celebrate, and you're excited. And maybe the birth of a child or a time with a friend or just a Sunday afternoon nap. Glorious. Good news. Life, life-giving. These moments. But then... On the journey, there are the hard moments, the moments of death. Uh, moments maybe even at a wedding wondering, will one day you get married? Moments at a wedding where maybe you're married, but there was divorce. Times where a friend shares their good news of a, the birth of a child and, and you're unable to have children or you've experienced the death of a child. Moments of relational pain. Moments of injustice when you look at the world and you wonder if anyone cares about your pain. Moments of life, moments of death. What on the journey can keep us going forward? What on the journey when the pains come can prevent us from just giving in to cynicism? All churches abuse power. It is just the way it works. Jesus. The gospel. Jesus can shape us. Jesus, the one who entered into the world, a concrete example in the material world, can bring new meaning, a new value system, a new meaning into your life. In the moments of good, you can celebrate and thank God and praise him because God gives life. And in the moments of death, you can weep, but not weep without hope because there is one who has come and he doesn't just point the way to the temple. He is the temple, the presence of God. He is the sacrifice that enables permanent worship. Will you invite Jesus to be the center of your life, the center of your story, the center of your journey? Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for being a God of justice. And sometimes we, that's hard. There are ways in which your justice brings comfort and there are ways in which your justice brings pause. But God, we, we praise you because you are a God of justice. And you are a God who uses power to protect the powerless. And you are a God who expressed that love most fully through your son who gave up power on the cross so that we could have the power to walk in eternal life. And Lord, help us to be people in a church that are humble, uh, that we don't see ourselves as better than anybody else, but we are humbled by the cross, humbled by our need for you and your grace and your work, but we are also empowered. We are empowered to extend your grace and your love to other people. Work in our life, work in our journey, and guide us along the way when it's hard and confusing. Amen.